And I am here today with my guest, Mr. Timothy Miller, author of The Strange Case of Eliza Doolittle. Uh, Timothy, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm glad to be here. So we talked a little bit off air about, you know, some of the uh, some of the stuff that kind of went into this uh, this book and the the experiences you had. Now, one of the first things I want to touch on before we even get started in the book is some of your life experience, because you've done uh, a lot of traveling and you have had a unique position uh, in a lot of what you refer to as like touristy type areas um, as a bartender, which I imagine, you know, especially where you've tended bar, you've seen some interesting things. So tell the folks a little bit about, you know, where you started and where you ended up with as far as this, uh, this bartending tour and, you know, maybe give us a couple of uh, interesting stories, you know, like crazy stuff that you've seen that you wouldn't see anywhere else. Well, I uh, started in New Orleans where I went to uh, college, uh, Loyola. And uh, actually I started there uh, at the campus pub. Uh, and uh, so when I graduated, I first went up to Chicago to uh, work for uh, Spiegel, uh, uh, catalog and absolutely hated it. So I went around and I went uh, back to New Orleans and got a job working in a college bar, which uh, was actually the uh, third most busy place in uh, New Orleans. Uh, they uh, basically had the Superdome, the racetrack, and the boot, as it was called, uh, college bar. And uh, you know, it was uh, basically what we called meatball surgery. Um, but uh, I did uh, work uh, for a while in the French Quarter, which is probably my, my scariest experience because uh, I found myself uh, one Fourth uh, of July uh, chasing a guy with, with a gun down Bourbon Street uh, with several other people, but uh, I found that I was uh, ahead of the pack and I'm thinking, you know, there's no way that I am the fastest person in this group. <laughs> you know? um, and uh, so that uh, made me reassess uh, working in the French quarter. Um, but uh, uh, eventually actually someone else caught up with him and we're like, he's got a gun, he's got a gun. Uh, but he had already uh, thrown the gun into a trash can. Uh, so uh, he got away and uh, uh, we all uh, uh, put ourselves back together and uh, went back to the bar. Uh, Probably the best course of action at that point. Yes. <laughs> uh, but why we were chasing him to begin with, I have no idea since he had the gun. Uh, it seems counterintuitive. Yes. <laughs> yes, all of this went through my mind as we were chasing him. It's that fine line between uh, bravery and stupidity. Yes, which I've often crossed, apparently. Uh, <laughs> and you, uh, you also you uh, you worked in Fisherman's Wharf as well. Yes, uh, Fisherman's Wharf and a blues club. Um, you know, basically, I could tell you about bar fights all day long uh, because uh, I got to the point where if I was even in a bar, you know, and there was a fight broken out, I thought of myself obligated somehow to break it up. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I, I learned how to break up fights uh, without uh, getting uh, in too much trouble myself. Uh, but uh it was, uh, you know, at one point I remember uh, having to remove one of my managers from the bar who was so drunk he just sort of stood there open-mouthed and you could, you know, you could have poured liquor down his throat. Uh, so uh, actually I got very good at, at uh, you know, talking to people and making sure that there wasn't trouble to begin with, uh, which is the best way to do it. 
but yeah, uh, the problem before it starts probably the uh, the safest way. Otherwise, you end up chasing a guy with a gun down the street. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that he was the most uh, talkative person in the world, uh, but he yeah. might have been. You know, uh, might have been uh, uh, a real uh, conversationalist. Uh, never really got to know him on a person-to-person uh, -person basis. Yeah, I think that, you know, in that situation, that might have been for the best. Um, do you need to take that? No, um, I, I never need to take that. That's the phone that I don't ever answer. Ah, um, okay. I think we all have those. Yes. Uh, it's uh, excellent for catching uh, people who are trying to sell me things. Uh, That's because they're really the only person, people who have that number. That's a good. That's a good plan. I uh, think. I think it works out well. I got a call from uh, Amazon the other day, telling me that I had spent uh, three hundred and fifty dollars, and uh, I hadn't spent this three hundred and fifty dollars. I should call them immediately, and I panicked for a moment. And then for a moment, I thought, "Wait a minute, Amazon does not have my phone number," so mm -hmm. I didn't worry about that anymore. Yeah. So. We uh, we talked a little bit about this um, this book, uh, the strange case of Eliza Doolittle, because you traveled a lot in your uh, in your life. You know, like you just, just you know when you were younger in your in your college days. You know, from New Orleans to Chicago, back to New Orleans. Um, like th those are not you know short little jaunts. Like those are you know that's significant mileage you're putting on there. Um, now this novel. And I admitted to you off air that I had no idea who Eliza Doolittle was because um, I'm not really, uh, uh, I was not really exposed to that particular musical or that story, uh, My Fair Lady or Pygmalion uh, as, as a kid. Um, and again, my wife, because she's a huge Mary Poppins fan, was aware of the Julie Andrews and Audrey Hepburn roles. Oh, yes. Um, so this is a Sherlock Holmes story that is told from the point of view of Watson about Eliza Doolittle and the whole, uh, the story there and the intrigue within it. Where did you, or how I should say it is, why did you decide that this was the story you wanted to tell and these were the characters you wanted to use to tell that story? Well, originally, uh, these characters kind of bumped to each other. I was in uh, Milan, Italy, and I was uh, teaching English. And uh, I had a uh, particularly lovely young couple uh, who were both... Uh, Learning, uh, learning English, and uh, they were having trouble with uh, English prepositions, which uh, all Italians have trouble with English prepositions because uh, Italians have about six prepositions and we have like uh, 150. Uh, and so uh, uh, what I did decided to do for them was to write a little story uh, with uh, full of prepositions uh, and leave the prepositions out and try to get them to guess them. And uh, so I thought of a detective story uh, since uh, that can, you know, give you questions about where something is and when something is and so on and so forth. Uh, and uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes naturally came to mind because I had been working on another Sherlock Holmes story, which it will actually be my second novel now. Uh, so uh, I thought, you know, I thought uh, I had to come up with some characters, uh, English characters that uh, my Italians would be familiar with. So they had to be very famous. Uh, and I thought of uh, uh, Henry Higgins and Eliza Doolittle. And I also thought about uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, and in this little story, I believe... Uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde were the uh, red herrings and uh, 
Eliza actually kills uh, Henry Higgins. Uh, I have no idea whether that's true because uh, it's been years uh, since I uh, uh, wrote the story and uh, acted it out for my uh, uh, little uh, Italian couple, which they loved it and uh, it really helped them. Uh, but I put the story away. Uh, I had no intention of doing anything with it, but I liked the characters together. And uh, basically it took me years to figure out why I had picked these particular characters and what they had in common. And when you think about it, uh, you think about uh, Holmes and Watson and Higgins and Pickering, who is uh, basically uh, Henry Higgins. Uh, uh, let me know if you don't know who the characters are that I'm talking about. No, uh, I do. Okay. Um, but uh, Pickering is uh, uh, basically Higgins Watson. Mm -hmm. So I had that, you know, whole uh, uh, two actors living together, uh, working together, uh, dichotomy there. And uh, then I had Eliza Doolittle and Mr. Hyde. And I realized that they were two sides of the same coin. Eliza is trying to become something better, something more uh, acceptable to society, whereas uh, Hyde is trying to be just the opposite. I mean, Jekyll and Hyde are trying to become the opposite. Uh, and what that might mean as far as, you know, that, that transition from the Victorian age to the Edwardian and what it might mean to someone like Sherlock Holmes or to Henry Higgins, whose work is based on a certain stability. Uh, you know, when uh, Holmes uh, describes somebody in the military because he knows exactly, you know, what uh, marks they uh, will uh, will have, you know, well, with someone like uh, Eliza Doolittle, she's just fluid. She's absolutely a fluid character, mm -hmm. you know. She's changed, and if people can change, and people were finally changing from the Victorian era, uh, then uh, Holmes's entire world uh, goes screwy. Uh, so I. Uh, worked with that and uh so i you know i had that on the back burner uh because uh i was writing screenplays and uh my first screenplay was uh, another sherlock holmes pastiche uh, and uh of course as soon as i had written it i could do nothing with it because uh sherlock holmes was still uh not in the public domain and uh the uh Sherlock Holmes estate was very touchy about your amusing uh, uh, that character and of course sued and sued and sued. Uh, so uh, I didn't do anything with it until uh, much later. I had uh, written a couple of uh, unsuccessful books and uh, I was actually writing uh, this one at the same time that I was writing another one, uh, which, uh, was a fantasy story that I had been uh, fooling with for ages. Uh, and this one took over. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's where it came from. That's a pretty good explanation. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, a couple of my follow-up questions were, you know, you're in Milan like, how do you get inspiration for, you know, a story that takes place in London with all these British characters? It's like, that's so weird. Like, you know, and I was trying to wrap my brain around like, why? But, you know, your explanation of I'm, you know, basically 
I did this to help teach Italians English. I mean, I've heard worse excuses to, to, you know, come up with stories and, 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 you know, like this was, that's a really cool way of, of like coming up with like, all right, what can I do? And, you know, thinking of, again, you know, at the time that you were writing it, you know, this was, you know, he, he wasn't public domain. These characters weren't public domain yet. So this is just like, okay, I'm writing this specifically to help teach someone and I'm using characters that, you know, everybody knows, like, you know, you could have picked, you know, Mickey Mouse or, you know, Superman, Superman. Or, <laughs> Robin Hood and uh, all these. A, a much more difficult uh, time. Yeah. Uh, but doing it this way, I think is uh, one of the more brilliant ways of, you know, not only forcing yourself to write a story, but also getting it to the point where, you know, you're, I would say you're a little more relaxed because you're like, well, you know, this will never see the light of day. You know, they're not public domain. They keep suing everybody. Ah, you know, so you're able to kind of, you know, be a little freer with the story and not have this, uh, this weight on you of like, I have to tell a perfect story because I'm doing this. But then, you know, you go back later, you polish it up. And, you know, like I said, you know, I got uh, after chapter three, it starts to feel like you are reading downhill is the term that I like. I don't know if anybody else says that, but it's where I feel like the story is starting to pick up momentum and starting to move forward, you know, like you're going downhill. You know, it's not not like the story's going downhill in a bad way. You know, it's yeah, like and moving you know like a like a boulder rolling down the hill like you know it's just going faster and faster or like a snowball rolling down a hill like it's it's uh it's picking up momentum like you have the the you know you've set the story up you've set the fact that you know you don't know exactly that it's watson until the second uh second chapter like you have a pretty good guess because it's a sherlock holmes story um but like you know, you get there and like you introduce uh, Pickering, and you know they served in in the uh, they knew each other from the army, and it's like oh this is like this is such a good connection, like this is such a way that like it doesn't feel forced, it doesn't feel, um, you know like you're overly expositing. It's just like yeah, this is this both of these stories take place in the same time period, and it would be perfectly natural for these guys to have met at some point. Like it doesn't feel forced. It feels like just any other story that these guys would be involved in, you know, and we see, you know, so many times in these, you know, in, in movies now, especially over the last 10 years or so with Marvel and Disney, all these crossovers, you know, you know, it's like, Oh, we have this standalone story, but you know, it also takes place in the same universe as this. So, you know, Batman and Superman can meet up, you know, Iron Man and the Hulk can meet up, you know, it's, uh, I like the idea of a literary extended universe and, you know, where you're talking about, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know, like that would have been a cool case. You know, it's, it's very interesting the way you're approaching this. And I really, really like your, your storytelling. Well, uh, part of it was, you know, being grounded in that era, uh, especially the Edwardian era, which I really fell in love with at a very early age. And I fell in love with it uh, from reading Wind in the Willows. Mm. And uh, when you you know really look at Wind in the Willows, it's about uh, two Edwardian gentlemen uh, who have plenty of leisure time uh, and uh, are living together. Uh, very much like Holmes and Watson, uh, and uh, they're you know they're rat and mole though, uh, and uh, at one point, as a matter of fact, uh, which I'm sure was a homage uh, by Kenneth Graham to uh, Doyle, uh, there's the, the point where they're lost in the woods, and uh, Rat uh, he actually trips over something, and he skins his knee. And from that, he works out that there must be a door scraper 
and uh, you know works out this whole thing where you know suddenly they find themselves in the snow when they uh, 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 when they discover that they're at Badger's door and they're saved. Uh, and Mole is saying, "My goodness, you know I've heard of such things before, but uh, you're an amazing detective." You know, you reasoned it all out in your mind, and it's just, you know, it's just exactly like Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, actually, I, I have a confession to make. I did not like mysteries growing up as a kid. Uh, I mean, I read Nancy Drew because Nancy Drew was hot, but uh, I did not uh, read read any Sherlock Holmes, for instance. I didn't read uh, Sherlock Holmes until uh, one weekend uh, when I was living with living in Houston with a roommate who had the complete Sherlock Holmes, and it was a rainy weekend. And I said, you know, what what the heck? I've got to uh, read something, and uh, I wound up reading the entire Sherlock Holmes canon in that weekend, uh, and uh, still. I didn't think I liked mystery, and it took me quite a while to actually uh, like mysteries. But uh, I very much liked the the whole scene, you know, the idea of them, uh, you know, running for the uh, handsome cab uh, to plunge themselves into another mystery in the dark uh, corners of uh, London. Uh, so I've uh, always been comfortable there. Uh, without you know ever spending a great deal of time there, uh, I only uh, spent some time there when I was uh, backpacking across Europe uh, in the early '80s, and uh, I was in London first and uh, realized that London was incredibly expensive, and I'd better get out if I intended to see any more of Europe. Uh, I think that makes sense. Let's see, that's that's interesting to me that, you know, taking, you know, that type of inspiration, like, you know, it took you a while to get in and, you know, obviously they made an impact on you. Um, and I would say you're not the only the only one. There is a uh, I don't know how well versed you are in uh, the world of horror cinema, but uh, there is a uh, a crossover with. Sherlock Holmes. It's called Sherlock Holmes and the Servants of Hell, where he takes on the uh, Cenobites from the Hellraiser franchise. Okay. Which I find that's definitely an interesting uh, an interesting crossover. Um, that one, I think, you know, probably a little more of a stretch than uh, than yours. Because, uh, like, you know, like we were saying, you know, all your characters in this in this story were contemporaries like they could all have met and you know it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for that to have happened um so yeah we have uh i had a a couple of questions regarding the uh you know inspiration in milan and and whatnot so we kind of covered those um I will say that reading this, your style definitely feels like I'm reading something uh, that might have been written by Doyle or, you know, one of his uh, or or like a, a Jules Verne or a, a Charles Dickens. Like it has that feel like that old timey, you know, feel of of, uh, you know, turn of the century, you know, 18, 1900s, like just. Uh, aesthetic for lack of a better term like it's hard with you know just printed words to come up with an aesthetic but you know the voice of your writing definitely has that feel like is that something that you worked on or is that just uh, oh, you yes. get uh, I mean uh, luckily I have a very good ear for accents uh, and uh, accents are really about the rhythm and the vocabulary it's why when I'm uh, on Facebook, for instance, and I read a quote and I'm like, he never said that because I can tell 
that it's not the words that that person would have used. Mm -hmm. uh, so I used to go around being very, uh, uh, very snide on Facebook about uh, misused uh, quotes, but uh, I've gotten over that now. Um, but uh, I really wanted uh, Watson's voice, and I was constantly, as I wrote, reading, rereading Watson to keep that voice in mind uh, because I, I wanted so badly. And, you know, I've read a few, not a lot of uh, Holmes pastiches because uh, I haven't read a lot because I'm afraid of it affecting my writing. Uh, but uh, I've read some that are just like, no, there's no way Watson wrote this. Uh, and I wanted uh, very much to hit that Watson sound. Uh, and uh, I'm really proudest of the, the sound of the uh, story even more than the story itself. Uh, uh, and I, I think you did like, like that was one of the first things I noticed, like, you know, I'm reading through this, you know, like just the first couple of paragraphs and it's like, yes, like this, I feel like, you know, I'm, you know, back, you know, the cobbled streets of London, you know, like this, you know, there's maybe two or three cars, but pretty much everybody's in a in a horse-drawn carriage, you know, or walking, and you know, it definitely builds that uh, that that world, and like puts you right into it because of you know just the the like you were saying, like just the voice of the character, like it's done really really well, and you know that's uh, I think a testament to your your devotion to your art here. Uh, and uh, I very much uh, wanted uh, the Dickensian voice, uh, mm. which I, I absolutely love Dickens and what never comes across in any Dickens movies, except Oliver is how funny Dickens was. Uh, and so I wanted that, that vigor and that aliveness because Everything comes alive in Dickens. You know, there's there's no such thing as an inanimate object. Uh, all objects uh, have their own purpose. Uh, they're uh, battling, you know, whether they're a chair or a person or a dog, they're all battling for space. Uh, and uh, they're battling as hard as they can. Uh so I wanted that feeling of exuberance uh, that uh, comes to in Dickens. I think that that was definitely something that I got out of this. Um, you know, like I said, you know, I haven't read a lot of uh, Doyle stuff, but I have read Dickens, and, you know, and I have read Jules Verne, and, you know, you, you have that, similar voice where you know it's not it's not the same you know like you were saying like you haven't read a lot of their stuff uh a lot of these pastiches to you know because you don't want it to get into what you're doing you know this is almost like i'm trying to come up with a good analogy where it's like you're listening to a recording like it's not the live thing you know, like, so there's a difference between going to a concert and listening to an album. And in this case, it's like listening to an album of a live concert where it's not exact, but it's so similar that you get, you almost get that exact same feeling that you would get from those writers and their voices. Uh, I think you, you really nailed it when it comes to, you know, it, it's like, um, I don't know if you've seen the the Guy Ritchie adaptations with uh, Robert Downey Jr. and and um, yes, you know I had that feeling of you know like when you first see them I think it's the Game of Shadows and they're they're in the the carriage on the way to uh, or in the car on the way to the uh, stag party and you see you know the you know London Bridge is you know partially being you know built in the background and you see the you know 
that was the you know the visual aesthetic of the film and that was the aesthetic i was kind of getting from uh the beginning of the story and as you transition to different uh locations i was getting you know you know talking about uh holmes's uh place that he had inherited you know like turning the uh that one room into an apiary which is just so something he would do uh you know not going into some of these rooms which absolutely is something that he would do like he's so uh he's measured in everything that he does but like to a lesser intellect to someone who doesn't have access to the inner workings of his mind you don't understand it like you know where the i think the line was the room could be rooms could be as neat as a pin or filled filled with field mice and black beetles and it would make no difference to him whatsoever and it's like that right there i think really captures the essence of the character but like the way you were describing his his uh his surroundings you know where it's you know you're the windows don't look out onto baker street they look out onto these like lush you know green fields you know kind of shades of uh peter jackson's uh lord of the rings trilogy when you're in the shire you know i kind of got a little bit of that and um even to a lesser extent because i am a, a huge nerd uh luke's island on on uh in the last jedi you know like just this rolling countryside you know with you know some interesting things to look at you know different trees and you know rock walls and you know kind of like stuff that you think you would see if you were driving out to see Stonehenge, you know, it's unremarkable yet remarkable. And at the same time, you know, like I think you really did a great job of through not just your, your descriptions, but also just the voice again, you know, I keep coming back to that, the voice of the characters, um, you just did such a good job of setting the tone and then to switch it right back to, you know, Oh, and now I'm, a, I'm an obnoxious New York millionaire. And it's, it's really well done. And I, I can't like praise you enough for the way that you, you transition from different scenes and make each scene almost feel like a, a scene in a film. Well, thank you. I mean, part of that, of course, is is that I've written about uh, 15 screenplays mm -hmm. and uh, I've learned, uh, you know, what is the important detail? Uh, because, you know, you want to you really give a few details and then let the reader build the rest of the world around them. Uh, the reader is always as important as the writer in creating the world. Uh, and of course it helps immensely having Watson because Watson protects Holmes from ever being understood. Uh, Holmes is always a mystery to Watson. Therefore he's always a mystery to us. I think and, that. Uh, Oh, go ahead. Uh, well, I, I've read a, a couple of Holmes tales, of course, that are uh, narrated by Holmes. And as soon as you take Watson away, Holmes becomes fallible because you uh, have Holmes' thought processes and, uh, you know, you, you don't have that air of mystery that uh, Watson always affords. And I think that makes sense, you know, like what we were saying, you know, earlier about like trying to view his uh, machinations, for lack of a better term, uh, through the lens of someone who does not have access to how his inner mind works. Um, I always liken it to, you know, a, a, an advanced case of like ADHD, where, you know, you see something and like that reminds you, it's like, oh, I saw this you know, blue feather. And it's like, Oh, uh, blue feather. That's probably from a blue Jay. Oh, my favorite blue Jay is, 
is, you know, Gary Carter. Oh, do you remember when Carter hit that home run in the World Series? Like, it's just these little things and every single thing, you know, leads you to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. And all of a sudden you're, uh, you know, you're like, aha, you know, he was killed in this forest because we found, you know, you know, this particular type of oak, which is used for baseball bats, you know, and, but you got there from a blue feather, you know, and you, you just, it's, it's, uh, you know, having the, that ADHD mindset myself, I can kind of relate to Holmes and his, his odd idiosyncrasies that he has, um, you know, and, you know, my wife is kind of my Watson where she's like, why, why would that make you think of this? Like, how did you get to that? how did you get from point A to point blue? Like, it's not even letters anymore. It's like, it, you're like off in another dimension. Like, how did you get there? And it's like, all right, well, but once and you I, explain it, it's not as cool. Yeah, I think that's the reason why people can read Sherlock Holmes over and over and over again, because obviously they know, you know, they know how the story ends. I mean, some of these people, you know, could could quote it like the the Quran. You know, they could uh, probably quote the entire uh, canon. Uh, uh, but the mystery of Sherlock Holmes is Sherlock Holmes, you know, and that's why I think people keep coming back is trying to understand uh, Holmes. And I think that's why uh, Sherlock has been such a big hit is that, uh, um, you know, it, it presents Holmes as the mystery uh, more than anything else, more than the, what he's involved in, more than the plot of the story. It's, how how does Holmes exist? Uh, yeah, and you have to treat him almost as um, like an endangered species, like a, a very delicate bird almost. It's like you have to nurture uh, his his weirdness. You have to embrace it and accept it and you know, you know, he's going to act all weird. You know, the, the, he's going to misbehave. He's going to rattle the cage, but you know, in the end, like this is, you know, this is the reason why you have him is because he provides so much joy to your life. You know, it's, it's like a, uh, like a, uh, having a, a high maintenance pet and, you know, like I just, you know, use the analogy to a bird. You know, I never had a bird, so I can't. Yeah, that was probably the wrong way to go when I started. But like having a pet that's just like, ah, you know, you knock down my favorite thing and, you know, you, you tore around the house and you peed on the rug. And then it's just like you're sitting around, and you're like, oh, man, this, this cat or this dog, like, man, what a pain in the ass. So then all of a sudden, like, they jump up on your lap and, get comfortable and just like look up at you with that look that you know animals get and you're just like yeah i guess it's all worth it that's kind of how i view sherlock holmes and i think probably the the best uh, adaptation i have seen of that character is probably uh gregory house from the show house with uh he laurie um you know because that's that's who he is like to the point where in the first episode he shows his license and he lives at 221 B Baker street. Like they weren't being subtle with that. You know, he wasn't an opioid at, he wasn't an opium addict, but he was an opioid addict, you know, and he had didn't have Watson, but he had Wilson. Like it's, um, and it's a testament to that character that there can be so many different versions of who he is. And, people are still drawn to that character. It's like, yeah, he's an arrogant jerk, but like every once in a while, um, you know, he proves why, why he's there. I view Sherlock Holmes as almost like an abusive relationship, you know, cause it's like everyone, it's like Lucy holding the football, you know, 
every once in a while she lets Charlie Brown kick it, but every other time you're like, man, why am I putting myself through this? Why am I dealing with this? I mean, that's my experience. I I try to explore that with Watson in this story uh, because, you know, Holmes has got to hurt his feelings several times a day. Oh, yeah. Uh, But, you know, he believes, and, you know, he could be entirely wrong. Maybe Holmes doesn't like him. Uh, But I don't think so. I think Holmes, you know, as much as he can, loves Watson. Uh, and the the little tokens of appreciation that he shows Watson are enough for Watson. Like I, I I agree. I think that he doesn't know how to show affection. He doesn't know, you know, because that's you know. I always thought of him as uh, a high functioning. Uh, autistic you know because he doesn't quite understand or not even autistic sociopathic because he doesn't understand emotion and human attachments he views watson more as like a tool or an accessory or a means to an end rather than a you know a peer because as far as he's concerned, he has no peers. Um, and I think that's an interesting dynamic um, because just having that relationship is, you know, built in tension at all times because you never yeah. know when Holmes is just going to snap, especially if he's having a hard time figuring something out. Uh, I think that is when he is at his most volatile. And uh, you'll find, uh, actually, in my in my novel that I'm working on right now, uh, the third in the series, and, and probably the last, uh, he uh, uh, Watson asks him why you know he he and uh, Holmes have had a falling out, and he asks Holmes why he decided to bring him along on this particular journey, and he says. Uh, why does the Flint need the stone? Uh, and uh, yep. uh, it's it's always like that. I mean, for me uh, as a bartender, getting back, uh, I've often found that there are certain people who make me twice as funny. Uh, and you know, I love to have them around and they, they don't necessarily talk, but I just, you know, I just am hilarious around them. And I, I'm sure that's true with everyone. Uh, and, you know, that's that's the dynamic with Holmes and Watson is that Watson brings Holmes alive in a way that perhaps only uh, cocaine did before. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's he's an addict. He needs his fix, and I think Watson provides a lot of that. Yes, you know, without the dulling of senses, but he still exactly. gets that that rush of of uh, dopamine or endorphins or adrenaline. You know, depending on the situation, he gets that uh from Watson and the way he treats them and the way Watson reacts to his mistreatment um you know it's a it's a very interesting dynamic with these characters um so you said you're working on another novel though so this was your first novel yes well my first published novel let's put it that way okay uh but you said there's three in the series. Can you uh, yes. elaborate a little more on, on that? Uh, well, the second one is actually set earlier. It's set in 1890. Uh, and it was my, my first Sherlock Holmes idea. And basically it came about uh, when I was in a card shop and looking at a picture of Vincent Van Gogh. And 
I, at the time, I knew about as much as anyone knew about Vincent Van Gogh. And I said, you know, and of course, I knew the story of how he had uh, cut off his ear uh, to prove his love uh, to a uh, to a uh, hooker. Uh, and I thought, well, now, if he wanted to prove his love, he's an artist. Why didn't he cut an eye out? Mm. And that was the beginning of my second book, which was actually the first one that I started to work on, became my first uh, screenplay, and now has become my second novel, uh, in which uh, Holmes investigates the murder of Vincent van Gogh. Very interesting. Uh, and uh, then I'm working on my third one, which... I probably shouldn't even talk about it at this point, uh, but it does actually. Details. I'm sorry. Just give us some vague details. No, you don't have to uh, delve too deeply. Well, um, let's put it this way: the inspiration for it was the little-known fact that uh, Conan Doyle, of course, Conan Doyle in his later life became something of a mystic. Uh, uh, believed uh, in uh, all the uh, seers and and uh, you know uh, that you could uh, communicate with the dead and so on and so forth, uh, and was actually the one uh, who first uh, came up with the idea of the Pharaoh's curse uh, in an interview right after the first victim to the curse had died. Uh, so in my book, it's Sherlock Holmes that first came, uh, comes up with this, uh, idea of the, of the, uh, Pharaoh's curse. And then basically he has to prove it. And so enough said about that. Yeah, that's, that's a, a pretty solid, uh, pretty solid storyline. Now, have you ever thought about, you know, um, you know, maybe, you know, expanding, you know, like we talked about your uh, literary universe, you know, maybe have some other uh, crossovers like, you know, maybe John Carter of Mars somehow ends up, you know, through some wacky techno technological uh, mishap, ends up uh, confronting Conan, you know, like something nutty like that. Um. Not with Holmes. Uh, at least I don't think so at this point. Uh, but uh, actually, uh, the book uh, was originally uh, actually going to uh, uh, have uh, the Prisoner of Zinda characters in it as well, uh, which I finally decided was just going a bridge too far. Uh, and it actually has although I don't like to talk about it because he's still in the public domain. It has a brief scene with Bertie Wooster uh, from the Jeeves books. Uh, he's never named, uh, but if, if you've read the, the Jeeves books or seen any of the Jeeves uh, stories, you know, it's him. Uh, and so he has a cameo appearance. Uh, so I'm never, I'm never going to say no, because if the story needs it, you know, I feel uh, just as uh, uh, comfortable uh, picking fictional characters as real people. And there are real people in, in this book. Uh, Colonel Von Stetten yeah. uh, uh, was a, a real person. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just, I found, you know, I, I needed someone uh, who, uh, who might uh, want Eliza for a wife. And I thought, okay, let, let's go through history. And I found out that the uh, Prince of Bavaria, his wife had just died. And so I'm like, okay, I can work with this. And I find his attache, uh, Baron von Stetten, and he becomes a character in the story. Uh, I like so, the, the way you're you're kind of integrating 
these real life characters into a story that's, you know, obviously largely fiction involving, you know, fictional characters. I think that's, uh, it definitely pinpoints the, uh, you know, the time period and it does open you up to a lot of scrutiny. So, you know, if somebody's going to be like, well, that's not, you know, he wouldn't have worn that, you know, his shoes wouldn't have buckles on him. He would have worn this, you know, like, you know, um, you know, for those people who are really like hardcore, like, I don't want to enjoy the story. I want to pick it apart. Uh, so showing that you've done your research, like on this, you know, like, oh, you know, how could I introduce a real life character to expand the story and progress the plot? Um, without, again, you know, just making some random person up. I think that it's a, it's definitely a bold choice uh, whenever you introduce real life stuff into it. But, you know, clearly you've done your research and you know what you're, what you're talking about. Well, of course, too, you know, when you're working with Sherlock Holmes, that you're going to get picked apart mm -hmm. by people who live Sherlock Holmes, you know, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, they will come up with dozens of things that, you know, Holmes could not possibly have done this and done that. And, uh, and you know, while I, while I try to uh, uh, be as thorough as possible, I'm sure that they are going to find things to pick at. Uh, and I live with that uh, because uh, so did Doyle. I mean, Doyle was constantly uh, screwing up uh, his timeline and so forth because he wasn't wasn't really interested in Holmes uh, after a certain point. Tried to kill him off, didn't work. Uh, brought him back because his uh, readers uh, insisted on it, uh, and and now his readers, uh, you know, insist that everything is correct and uh, you know have endless rounds of uh, arguments uh, about why this doesn't seem to fit. You know, where, you know, the thing is, it doesn't seem to fit because he forgot. <laughs> but, you know, there are the people who play the great game. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, but they, they play the game that Holmes was an actual person. And therefore, everything has to make sense in all of his stories. Uh, no, but in that case, you know, I I am I, familiar with that. You know, and, you know, it, it kind of, you know, kind of reminds me of, um, you know, like the, uh, because there's so many uh, stories and there's such a, you know, a breadth of, of mythology for, you know, lack of a better term, uh, surrounding homes. It's kind of like, you know, the James Bond stuff, you know, where, you know, Ian Fleming was, uh, you know, a, a, a spy, you know, and he hung out with you know, like Roald Dahl and those guys. Uh, so a lot of that stuff, you know, yeah, there's some, there's some kernels of truth sprinkled here and there. But you don't know what, you don't know where. And I think with any, any type of large sprawling, you know, franchise, you know, um, you're going to have inconsistencies. You're going to have, you know, things that it's like, well, how could he have been here? Because, you know, if you look at page 12 on novel three and, you know, like it says he was here, like, did he travel at like light speed to get from China to, you know, Mexico? Like it's, it happens to everybody, no matter how good your notes are. Like I've seen interviews with George R.R. R. Martin where like, you know, people come up to him and like, oh, did you know that this happened? And you're like, but you said that it was over here. And like, you know, why would oh, he be yeah. red? It's like, yeah, I'm still trying to figure out with George R.R. R. Martin how uh, somebody in the frozen north uh, has lemon for his tea every day. It's like, yeah. what? <laughs> yeah. Like that's, yeah. Again, you know, there's, there's a lot of those, uh, he, there's a lot that rides on citrus in, in these stories. Like there's a lot of like lemon related inconsistencies. And it's funny that you said lemon specifically, but yeah, there's uh, you know, sometimes it's like, well, was that an intentional mistake? You know, and then you start down that rabbit hole. It's like, did they say that because he's leading us somewhere? Like, 
you know, oh, was it all a dream? Like, oh, just, you know, so I, I, you know, like you said, you know, take that stuff with a grain of salt because it's incredibly difficult to, again, have this large sprawling thing. And if you're not an expert and, you know, you don't have like an eidetic memory, you're, you're going to get a, a detail wrong, no matter how copious your notes are, you know, there, there are times when you forget to, you know, you know, cross cross your capital H and dot your lowercase j like it happens. Well, I look at it this way. It means that A, they've read it, and B, they care. Yeah, they're invested. Uh-huh. And that's really what you're looking for, uh, exactly. your readers. So I know uh-huh. we're uh, we're coming up on uh, just about an hour, so uh, I'm going to wrap this up. But before I go, what uh, I know you said you're working on your, your third novel. Uh, but what else uh, have you got coming down the pipeline here? Like, I know you also, you know, you said you write screenplays, you do poetry as well. Uh, what else can we uh, can we look for from you uh, in the coming coming months? Um, I would say uh, definitely if I can uh, get uh, more work done on this uh, novel, uh, there will be another screenplay. Uh, Basically, this one will be about uh, a lawsuit against a ghost uh, mm. who is uh, a rich uncle who has died but uh, will not leave uh, his uh, home. And uh, so they try to sue him. Um, That's interesting. It was like a, 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 a... What's the word I'm trying to use? The... Uh, uh, a, a, a litigious exorcism. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> that's that's interesting. I, I think that's interesting. Um, so your book, uh, the the strange case of Eliza Doolittle. This drops uh, the same day that this episode drops, Tuesday, January nineteenth. There'll be links in the show notes. So folks can find uh, the Amazon link directly to it. Um, where do you like folks uh, interacting with you? Do, you? do you do social media where you interact with uh, your readers? Um, you know, I, I mean, I really haven't that much because I haven't had any readers. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I do have a, uh, a website that I intend to be more involved with uh, called the strange cases of Sherlock uh, because there will be three strange cases uh, and then perhaps a couple of novels with uh, Holmes as a, uh, a cameo appearance. Uh, one having to do with uh, the uh, theft of the Mona Lisa by Pablo Picasso which is alluded to in this, in this story. Yes. Uh, it's a, it's a fascinating story in itself. Just, you know, the facts of it. Uh, it sounds. It. <laughs> so yeah, we'll have links to your, uh, to your website as well. So folks can, uh, can interact with you there. Um, if you don't have a Facebook group for your for your work or like an author page, I strongly recommend it. But folks can follow you uh, on your author page on Amazon. I've already done so uh, because I am very much interested in uh, in checking this out further and uh, seeing your your upcoming work. Uh, yeah, they, so- they can follow me on uh, Amazon or Goodreads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Goodreads is another one. I always forget about Goodreads for some reason. Um, but yeah, definitely, uh, definitely check out Mr. Timothy Miller on either of those platforms and pick up the book when it comes out. Uh, well, by the time you're hearing this, the book is out and available, get it. It's a very fun read. Uh, as you can tell, I have not yet finished it. Like I, like I mentioned, because I don't want to accidentally give a spoiler away. Um, but what I've read so far, I'm. I'm really happy with it. I'm really, really liking it. And I look forward to finishing it. And I will be in touch once I do so. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Well, I want to thank you for uh, joining me today. Thank you for taking time out of your day. I know this is time that you could 
probably be working, but uh, I do appreciate you coming on and uh, I look forward to uh, chatting with you again in the future. And uh, I wish you uh, all the success for your book. Thank you. All right, so we will be right back after this. <laughs> 